Good morning. Welcome to Redeemer Women's Bible Study. It is a joy to be with you all this morning. Um, I'm going to apologize in advance. I have a slight... We're in that time of year where our house goes from air to heat often, right? And or it just doesn't move. Um, and so I have this... I'm just kind of dry. So if I start coughing, it's just, just the dryness. Um, let me pray and we can jump into chapter 14. Dearly Father, thank you so much for who you are and how you work. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your son, Jesus, your word incarnate. Lord, I just pray that you would open our hearts and minds to you this morning, that all outside distractions would flee, that you would fill this space that you would also fill the spaces of those who are listening or watching online, that you would shield them as well from outside distraction, that we might just be able to focus on you and your story, focus on your, your, just your goodness towards us, your dogged steadfastness of love towards us, Father. So I just lift up this time to you. We thank you for this beautiful morning. We thank you for the flowers that are blooming, the light green that is popping up everywhere, the, the promises of spring, and the promises of Easter. And we just pray that we're able to see you more and know you more as we hear your word. Amen. Okay, so we are at chapter 14. And we talked about last week how this, you know, was the end of his ministry. Um, his public ministry in 12, and then in 13, we saw his private instruction towards his disciples. But then chapter 14 begins the passion narrative. So all semester and really all year, we have been talking about how Mark's main goal with his gospel was that we would know Jesus and know him crucified and know him as the Son of God, the Savior, Messiah, who was sent for us. And so we, in these last three chapters, are there. We're there. In Jesus, we're going to see that Jesus knows that he's also there. Um, this, this passage, like all of Mark's chapters, is beautifully written. Um, his literary prowess is once again on display with just the way that he uses his words and how he tells the story in order to show us the grander story of what's going on. In chapter 14, um, the first 11 verses, chapter 14, 1 through 11, that's kind of the introduction where Mark introduces where we're going with this chapter. We're going to see the plot to kill Jesus and then also Jesus being anointed. But then in the last part of the chapter, we're going to see two cycles happen, and we're going to talk through these as we go forward, but I just wanted to give them to you in the beginning. Um, the first cycle is that we're going to see Jesus' suffering his suffering, betrayal, and abandonment. And there's three ordered accounts around the meal, the Passover meal. So this first cycle that we see, it's three ordered accounts around the Passover meal. And we're going to see the preparation of the meal, the announcement of the betrayal, and then the interpretation of the elements. And we're going to go through all of those um, together, but that's verses 12 through 25. But then there's this second cycle, and it's this progressive realization of abandonment. So we're going to see that Jesus begins to become more and more alone 
through the prophecy of denial, his prayer alone, and then his arrest and desertion. And so in this chapter, we're going to move from Jesus being surrounded by his followers, being shown this beautiful truth through the Passover meal with Jesus. But then we're also going to see his ultimate denial by those who love him most and who've followed him and their desertion of him as he's arrested. So that's where we are. Um, it's odd to be here, right? We've been talking about this all year, and now here we are at the Passion. And truly, this is why, this is why he came. And, and his, the truth of what we're going to start talking about in the next three weeks is our truest identity um, and what we can clothe ourselves in and go towards the throne of grace. So let's begin. Um, just a, a few quick notes about Passover so that we know where we are um, when Mark is talking about it. Um, the Passover was known as the, is a festival of redemption. It's the 14th month of, and I'm going to say Nisan, it's Nisan, I think, around April or May. And it's continued, it, it continues into the early hours of the 15th. And we see this in Exodus 12, Numbers 9. In Deuteronomy 16, this is Old Testament stuff, right? Old Testament truths. So the Passover is the festival of redemption, and it's followed by the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So within the Jewish calendar, uh, ritual, religious calendar, we have the Passover, and it's followed by the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now we know the first Passover, this is from Exodus 12, this is from Exodus 12, and what we know of that, so way back in Exodus, it's probably one of my favorite books, um, the Hebrews are still in Egypt, right? And Moses is trying to have them set free. And remember, Pharaoh goes back and forth, yes, no, God hardens his heart. And so all of the plagues happen in Egypt. And so then we get to the 10th plague, and the 10th plague that was threatened was that all of the firstborns, in the country would be killed, the firstborns of anybody, but mainly the Egyptians, right? So any, anyone, every firstborn in the land would be killed from the people to the livestock. So every firstborn. But God tells Moses and Aaron something that would protect his people, something that would protect the Hebrews. And so in, he, in Exodus 12, we see he goes on to say, and if the household, so he's telling them that all of Israel during this month to take a, take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for each household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to each that you can eat to make sure you count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish and male one year old. So we see there's this, there's this care for neighbor so if your house was too small or you didn't have enough money for a lamb and your neighbor did, your neighbor's lamb would cover you. We see this covenant community. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. So while Jesus is having this be the Passover feast, all of the Paschal lambs were being sacrificed at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts on the lintel of the houses, the cross beam in which they eat. And then, so then it goes forward. And then it says, it is the Lord's Passover. 
For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike down the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt. I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you or destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So in this, right, so we're, we're deep Old Testament, dealing with the obvious wrath of God. So God, he passed over, God's judgment passed over Egypt. And if the blood was not on the house, every firstborn in the house, whether a baby or a 65-year-old man, would die if they were the firstborn. So in my house, if I did not have the blood over my house, Evie would die. Like that's how, like that's how personal and how real it was in Egypt that night. But the blood, the, the blood of the lamb over the houses protected them. Now an interesting note here, the lintel on these houses, oftentimes in the culture, they either had the family crest or the symbol of the God that they worshiped on their houses. And so the blood of the lamb was over their house. And so this is where we find ourselves, this Passover, this festival of redemption is what Israel remembered year after year. They were required to, to remember God's rescue of them. But what's so beautiful about this is that it wasn't that Israel was perfect that he passed over. He passed over those houses because the blood of the lamb was over them. Had they not, they also would have lost their firstborns. And so we see that this is the festival that, we, that is starting in chapter 14. And in, the, in that time in Jerusalem, the, the population of the city went from around 50,000 to 250,000 because people would travel to Jerusalem for this festival, for this, these, these feast days. And so there were more people in the city. So there were more people in the city during this passion narrative throughout these days as this happened. So let's start now in chapter 14, verse one. It says, it was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So we know that Mark, as he's telling us this story, the, this wording here is that this might have been the next day after chapter 13, but in reality, it's just, it, he was in the area for a couple of weeks. So he's letting us know that this is the beginning of a new story. This is a new timeline. And the chief of priests and scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. Right? So they are actively seeking. They're actively seeking how to arrest by stealth and kill him. So it's no longer just talking about it. They're actively trying to make it happen. But not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And this is because of how many people were in the city, right? There were more people than normal, and so there was more likely to be a riot if they didn't play their cards perfectly. Verse three, and while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. Now, this is, this is beautiful. So they're in Bethany, and Bethany is about two miles from Jerusalem, and it was on the way from Jericho to Jerusalem. And so we see that Jesus is also 
in the way Mark is telling us, he's telling us he's also on this pilgrimage to Jerusalem. He's also fulfilling the pilgrimage that everyone else would have had to do for Passover. So he's on the way to Jerusalem, he's in Bethany, and this woman comes and she takes an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, which was very costly, it was a perfume, and she broke the flask over it and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? Excuse me. For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and, giving, and given to the poor, and they scolded her. Now in, so Mark doesn't tell us her name, but in John chapter 12, John chapter 12, <coughs> there's a very similar story. And it says, six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him. There Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary, so the sister of Martha and Lazarus, therefore took a pound of expensive ointment from the pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of perfume. And this just gives this imagery of that perfect sacrifice. Remember in the Psalms when it talks about the perfect sacrifice given to the Lord and its smell lifts up to heaven. It lifts up and he smells that perfect sacrifice. So her sacrifice filled the house with this beautiful smell. But Judas Iscariot, so he names him, one of his disciples who was about to betray him said, why was this ointment not sold for 300, 300 denarii and given to the poor? So he gives us that he rounds out this story a little bit more for us, right? So, so Mary anoints him with this perfume. And when they scolded her, Jesus back in Mark says, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing for me, for you have always have the poor with you whenever you want. You can do good for them, but you will not always have me. So we're going to see him continue. He keeps talking about how he, he's about to not be there. He's about to go. His time is almost up. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in her memory. Now, he's been talking about his death. He's been talking about his time to leave. But here we, we get this sense that he knows that his death is going to be that of a criminal's. So when you died in, in, in the Old Testament, when you died back in this time, and I, oftentimes through history, if you were a criminal, you weren't afforded an appropriate funeral. You weren't given that which was due to uphold your dignity as a human being, as a person. And so here Jesus is saying he knows that he's going to have a criminal's death. And so here Mary is anointing his body for death because in the end, his body wouldn't have been anointed. So we see him, he, know, he knows what's coming. He knows what's happening. Verse 10, then Judas Iscariot, seek, Judas Iscariot, who was one of the 12, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. Now in, in the original language, what we see here is that in the beginning of the chapter, in verse 1, when it talks about the chiefs and scribes were seeking how to arrest, and the wording here when it says Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief of priests 
It's the same word used. So in, in our, in our language, in English, they changed it a bit to flow with the story, but the root word, the base word is the same word. So it's connecting. It's this intent to kill, this intent to destroy Jesus. It is saying here that Judas has the same heart for him as the chief priests. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. So here we have this introduction where we know it's kind of like the foreshadowing events before this big event in a movie. We know that the, the, the trap has been set, that Jesus has been betrayed, and we know what Judas is about to do. But we get to see the Passover before that happens. So in verse 12, and when it was the first day of unleavened bread, the 14th, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, right? So they've, they've sacrificed the Passover lamb for this. His disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. This sounds a lot like when they had a triumphant en entry and he said, go into the city and you'll find a cult. Go into the city, a jar of water, and this man will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he, wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room? Where, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready there to prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. You know, we don't get any more details, but I wonder if they were surprised because so often they, they miss what Jesus is saying. But I wonder if they were surprised that everything that Jesus said was happening was, would happen, actually happened. Verse 17, and when it was evening, he came with the 12. So the fact that it was evening, we're, we're, we're being told all the more that this would have been the Passover meal. Regular suppers were eaten mid-afternoon but the Passover meal was eaten later in the day. And they were reclining at table and eating with Jesus. And Jesus said, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me, one who is eating with me. And they begin, they begin to be sorrowful. And they say to him one after another, is it I? And he says to them, it is one of the 12, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes, as it is written of him, but woe is that man by who the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And so here, Jesus, when he's talking about the dipping of the bread, we see words from Psalm 41. So Psalm 41, it says, My enemies shall say, shall say of me malice. When will he die and his name perish? And when one comes to see me, he utters empty words while his heart gathers iniquity. When he goes out, he tells it abroad. All who hate me whisper together about me. They imagine the worst of me. Sounds like the Pharisees and the scribes, those who hate him. Verse 8, they say a deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. So one of his friends, one of those who was with him, and Jesus knew who he was, knew who he was, was eating bread. And the, and the, the sorrow of the disciples, it makes us wonder, did Judas also act sorrowful in this moment, knowing what he was about to do? Knowing what he was about to do. 
And so in verse 22, we see Jesus acting as the head of family because the head of the family would have led this meal. And as they were eating, he took the bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them. And they said, take, this is my body. And then he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it and the new kingdom of God. And so we see here Jesus recognizing that this was his last meal. He knew that he would not eat again until after, after what was about to happen. We see also Jesus instituting this new covenant in this terminology that we see him using in Exodus 24. Lots of jumping back to the Old Testament. In Exodus 24, verse 6, it says, And Moses took half of the blood. So this is the, the covenant with Israel that Moses instituted with, with the 12 tribes, of, 12 tribes of Israel. And when he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of, of oxen to the Lord, and Moses took half the blood and put it in the basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And he said, all that the Lord has spoken, and they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. We will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant and the Lord has made with you in accordance with these words. Now, what we know about this covenant is that Israel was not obedient, were they? They continually broke covenant with the Lord. <coughs> Excuse me. But what we also know, going back to the original covenant with Abraham in chapters 12 and 15 back in Genesis, what we know about that original covenant, and we've talked about this before, is that when God made that covenant with Abraham, and they divided the animals, right? Most covenants, both parties walk through. But in that covenant, only God, the smoking pot, the presence of God, only God went through the pieces of those animals, basically saying, if this covenant is broken, let this happen to me. Let this happen to me. And so all of the blood that was ever shed was protecting us, even though we will have always been the covenant breakers. And so here's Jesus. This is my blood, not the blood of the covenant. This is my blood of the covenant. See the change in the words, which is poured out for many. He is speaking to that deep truth, that deep longing that from the beginning of time, we have needed. Since Genesis 3, this blood has been needed. That's why there had to be daily blood spilt within the temple system. So this is my blood of the new covenant. We see the new covenant happening here. Jesus' words, Jesus is both instituting it, but that he is also the Paschal Lamb. He is also the sacrifice. Verse 26. And when, they had, and when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. So we start to see him acknowledging that he's going to be alone. 
But after I rise up, I will go before you to Galilee. And so here, this is where we see this beautiful grace spoken even before they actually desert him. It's like the grace spoken to us before we even realize how fully sinful we are. Even before they desert him, there's this sense of hope that they will be with him again, even after they desert him, even after he dies. But then Peter says to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus says to him, truly, I tell you this very night when the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, I must die with you. I will not deny you. And they all said the same. They all said the same. And that striking the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. He's speaking words from Zechariah 13. So he's, he's showing us that the prophecies of old are being fulfilled. The words of old, the, the scriptures that you have known are being fulfilled in order to create this new Israel this new Israel will God will say, I, they are my people and I am their God. I'm their people and they are my God. And so he's, he's told Peter that you're going to deny me, right? And they're like, oh, of course not. Of course we won't. It's not going to happen. We, we're going to die with you. And so then we get to the garden. And they all went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter, James, and John and began, to, and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. Now in all of the Gospels, we're told how distressed he was. Luke tells us that he was so stressed out that he was sweating blood. He was anxious because he knew what was about to happen to him. Not anxious in a sinful way, but he was human. He knew the pain that he was about to go through. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even unto death. Remain here and watch. Watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible from you, for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. So here we see Jesus crying out to, to God, that Abba, Father language, Daddy, Daddy, everything is possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Now this cup that he's talking about was the cup of God's wrath, right? But how he prayed is poignant. He said, not my will, but yours, right? And so Oda have the courage to say that about all things, right? He wasn't trying to buck the system. He wasn't trying to get out of what he had to do. He was being honest about the agony that he was about to go through. But even in that, obedience in the garden Yet I will, not what I will, but you will. And here we see um, the slight turn, the slight shift in the battle. The past two days, you know, I, I talk, I've know I've talked often about being a Floridian 
and abhorring the cold. Um, and it's been chilly in the mornings, right? But there's a difference in the chill. It's not that bone cold that we had even two months ago where you walk out and I just want to get in the fetal position because of how cold it is, no matter how many layers I have on. But you walk out and there's a chill, but there's also warmth behind it. And so here in the garden, we see this shift in the season. We see this shift in the battle. It's almost like when you're watching a movie and there's this intense, like a Lord of the Rings, intense battle happening, but all of a sudden the forces for good start gaining ground, right? Because it wasn't too long ago in, in the way that the Lord's timing works. It was a long time for us. There was another man in the garden who was not obedient, right? In Genesis 3, there's a man in the garden with his wife who listened to the enemy rather than the words of God, who said, my will, not God's will. And it enacted, it started this whole mess. That was when the kingdom of death started to reign. That was when the kingdom of death got its hold on the world. And so here we see the shift in the kingdom. Here we see the obedience of the true son, the true Adam, saying, God's will, not mine. And ultimately, it's starting the events where we will see death killed forever. Death's day will be done. God's wrath will be poured out on the cross and sin will no longer have its hold. If the wages of sin are death, it will be crushed. And so here in this beautiful garden moment, we see obedience. And we see this man, also God. Also God. Talk to his daddy. But also love you so much. He had you in mind here. He had all of us in mind here. Ever since Genesis 3, Mark 14 was also going to happen. That was in the story, right? It was in the story. So he says, I will, not what I will, but what you will. And he came out and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, Peter and Simon, are you asleep? Which I love because he just told him last chapter, don't fall asleep. Are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And then he went away again and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man has been betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going to see my betrayer is at hand. So Jesus knew. We see that we see his God-likeness in this. He knew the very moment when he had been betrayed. Verse 43, and immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve with him with a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. 
seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. Now, I think in today's culture, that would be, it would be kind of weird. Like if someone was walking up and said, hey, Giorgio, and, like, and kissed Giorgio, like we just, like that just doesn't happen, right? But it was culturally appropriate. They would walk up and they would kiss on the cheek um, their rabbi or their teacher. But it would have been, a, and it also would have been a normal signal. Like it would have been something normal that was happening. It wouldn't have been a surprise. And so then they laid their hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Mark doesn't give us the details, but John tells us in chapter 18 that, that it was Peter who did this. And Jesus said to them, have you come out against a robber? with swords and club, clubs to capture me, right? They're treating him like a thug, like he was some physical danger to them, right? A murderer. Day after day, I was with you in the temple teaching. So we know that some of these people in this crowd were from the temple. I was with you day after day, and you didn't seize me then. But let the scriptures be fulfilled, and they all left him and fled. So we see that even though they are sure that they want to bring him under charges and to kill him, they also know that they probably shouldn't be doing this. The things that we want to hide are often done in the dark. Verse 51, And as a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. And there's, there's thought that the linen cloths were usually worn by wealthy, wealthier people back then and so there's a some think that this was actually mark putting himself in his own gospel um but really the way that it's written we just see that jesus is absolutely alone and that the last young man with him following him left without any clothes on that is how much he wanted to get away and not be caught with jesus he let his clothing be ripped off of him as he ran away Verse 53, and they led Jesus to the high priests and all the chief priests and elders and scribes came together and Peter had followed him at a distance and ran into the courtyard of the high priest and he was sitting with the guards and warming himself with, by the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none because he was innocent. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimonies didn't agree. And some stood and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple. This, made, this is, that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another, not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is that that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, coming with the clouds of heaven. So here we see this incredible event, this incredible imagery of Jesus being tried. And all of these false witnesses are trying to, they're trying to peg him on something that they could actually execute him for. And in truth, 
And in truth, when you talk about like the destruction of places of worship back in this time, any place of worship in the Greco-Roman world is a capital offense. So they kept trying to catch him on that because even the Romans would get upset at that. You weren't allowed to destroy temples. It was a capital offense. But then they ask him, and this is where we see the first time that Jesus says that he's the Messiah. And the chief priest, the high priest, the one who should have known who he was, who should have rejoiced at who Jesus was, asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And when Jesus says, I am, remember, I am was a word, a name for God. It wasn't just him saying, yes, it was me. Using the phrase, I am, was claiming divinity. I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, the right hand of God, coming with the clouds of heaven. He was claiming who he was. Verse 63, and the high priest tore his garments. This would have been blasphemy of all blasphemies. You didn't say that. You didn't claim divinity. What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him deserving death. And some began to spin on him and cover his face and strike him saying, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. So at the utterance of who he truly was, darkness revolted. It cringed. It tore out. We see the priest reacting the way the unclean spirits reacted when Jesus was around the people who had them. Remember how they revolted, how the people lost their minds because of how the, the spirits reacted to Jesus? The priest tore his clothes in agony, but not true agony. He was, he was disgusted by Jesus' words. And we see that we see the darkness moving, the darkness working here. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girl, girls of the high priest came and seeing, seeing Peter warming himself, she looks at him and says, you also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him again and again said to the bystanders, this man is one of them. But while he denied it, after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and he wept. And so here, I think, of course, next chapter where we see Jesus mocked and beaten and crucified. It is a dire and dark chapter. But here we see him be completely stripped and alone. He was followed and beloved, but those who were closest with him left. One ran away naked. And then Peter, who was one of the ones who got the, the personal lessons with him throughout. Remember, Peter was always the one who got called away 
and got those special words, he even denied who Jesus was. And so here this morning for us, especially as, we, as we're in the middle of Lent, right? We're in the middle of Lent and Good Friday is coming. The question for us is where, how do we respond to the truth of who Jesus is? And how do we respond to the truth of who Jesus is despite what the world says of him? Because the world still reacts the way the great high priest did. The world still reacts to the light in the very same way. The light has shone in the darkness and the darkness still does not understand it. And so as we wrestle with these chapters, as we wrestle with the passion, we need to think about how what Jesus really fulfilled, how the rebellion in the garden in Genesis 3 is being righted by his true obedience, and how the death that we inherited in the garden is being killed and, and poured out here, we're seeing the beginning of the truth that, that what we are covered by, how we go straight to the throne without fear of condemnation, that's happening here because of Jesus's blood of the new covenant. And so do we live like new covenant people? Do you live like the light's always going to shine? Or do we focus more on the darkness. And I dare say in today's world, it's real easy to focus on the dark things, the hard things. And oftentimes, oftentimes all we feel is the chill in the air, right? We don't realize that there's warmth behind it, that the season has turned, right? Spring is coming, right? Oftentimes it feels just like Friday all the time. And we forget that Sunday's coming. So as you go into chapter 15, let yourself sit in it, right? Because it's so easy, like we're, we're Christians, right? We know that we know the New Testament. I know Jesus' story, but have you ever just sat with the crucifixion and just sat with what he did and who he was and what it means? So allow yourself in this next week as you study chapter 15 to just sit with it and wrestle with it and sit in your sin. Peter is sitting in his denial of Jesus, unable to talk to him, unable to say, hey, I'm sorry for denying you. He has to sit in his denial, watch him be crucified and wait for him to rise again in order to be restored, right? We don't have to wait like that, but there's this moment of recognizing and allowing our denial of him to realize it, but then to also sit with what he did because there's safety in that because guess what? Chapter 16 is coming. Sunday is coming. You are Easter people and you're covered by that even as we wrestle with these hard things. Let me pray. Hey, Father, thank you for who you are. Thank you for your goodness. Lord, thank you for your son, for his obedience. Thank you for your good word to us, Father. I pray that you would write it on our hearts, 
that you would change our hearts, Father, that you would take out our hearts of stone and give us soft hearts to love and to forgive and to give grace, just as you have poured out your grace all over us. I pray that you would go with us and are going out and are coming in, that you would go ahead of us and behind us. Protect us, Father, throughout our days and bring us all back again next week. Amen.